Today's Animal Spirits Talk Your Book is brought to you by Naveen. Go to naveen.com to learn more about their fixed income products that we're going to talk about today. Again, that's naveen.com. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Michael, we've spent a lot of time in recent months talking about people moving money to cash because money market funds are good and CDs and short-term stuff is good. And we've been wondering, like, what's the impact of that on the stock market potentially for flows, right? Like if, if the stock market takes off well, and short-term rates go down, will that money go back into the stock market? We've never really talked about it in terms of the bond market. So one of the reasons people gave for why the long-term end of the bond market came up is because, well, there's the government is issuing all this new debt and there's no supply to pick it up. And so we talked to Nick Travellino today from Nuveen, and he said one of the reasons that liquidity is so low is because of cash. Like people are moving fixed income into cash, not necessarily just stock market. Like we, we think about timing the market like going from stocks to cash, but cash is an alternative for the bond market as well. So how about this for a theory? What if 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 rates were to fall for either a soft landing or because inflation fell or recession, whatever the reason is, rates fall and the bond market starts to, to rally, could we actually see money come out of cash and in going into bonds for like a flight to safety as opposed to the stock market? How's that? No. You don't think so? No. Nah. You don't think people will chase if yields start to fall and they start to lose their yield in the short-term money markets and such? Nope. I don't think, I don't think that, I think that is very slow money. And I don't think people will chase a bond rally. I think money will come out of the stock market and chase bonds, or not chase bonds, you know, run to the safety of bonds. But I don't think cash is going to come out. Of, no, I, I, I reject that idea. I think if there's a recession, the the flight to safety and quality of like treasuries could be a thing. Out of money market funds, I think it's possible. If if rates were to fall enough to get people to say, "eh, this is not worth it anymore," I you know, time will prove me right or wrong. But my working thesis or my working assumption is that the money that slowly made its way into money market funds will be trapped there for a long time. Okay. All right. I, 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 th- I, I think it's a, I think it'll be interesting because there's been so much money that has gone in there. I, and people have been known to chase yield when it gets higher. I'm it curious. It also depends what the Fed does. Yes. Like if the Fed cuts from five to three, then yeah, that should spur some activity. But if, if it's a stair step, eh, we'll see. We'll see. I, I do think that's like the, the, uh, it, it could like help sway some sort of it, through cash flows alone, some part of the market potentially. I, I think it'll be interesting to see. I, I, I agree with you. Like, there could be some inertia there, or people, it could be fast money chasing yields. I don't know. So, I, I do think the bond market is interesting. We, we got into a bunch of different topics with Nick Travellino from Naveen, who manages a strategic income fund there. And we hit on everything from the Fed and predicting rates and macro and all this stuff. So, this was a good conversation, but it spurred me to think about that. Here's our conversation with Nick Travellino from Naveen. We are joined today by Nick Travellino. Nick is the Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Nuveen. Nick, welcome to the show. Hey guys, how's it going? Super excited to be here. Bonds are typically the boring part of the financial markets, of portfolios. They have not been for the past couple of years. I, I would venture to say bond. the bonds have been more 
exciting. They've been gotten more tension than they usually do, than they normally do. What has it been like for you just managing money through this period of uh, just an unprecedented fixed income market? Yeah, it's been really exciting uh, for once, especially after the zero interest rate policy that we came out of in the COVID era and, uh, you know, actually seeing yield and opportunity and changing dynamic markets that um, give spread opportunities and relative value opportunities for investing. I remember like the back in the day, and when I say back in the day, I'm talking like 2019, where high yield bonds were yielding less than cash is now. Kind of an incredible situation. So Ben and I were talking, I think the title for one of our podcasts, like, I don't know, three, four weeks ago at this point was higher for longer. And it seemed like that, that became consensus pretty quickly. I don't know. It seemed like it happened kind of overnight. Uh, and then as things in the market tend to do that aged incredibly poorly, here we are, I don't know, four weeks removed from that and the world has changed yet again. So how do you see the state of, of the yield market today? Yeah, that higher for longer mentality kind of went poof, like really, really quickly. Um, you know, it's it's been a challenging year and an interesting year for bonds. I think we entered the year looking for 2023 to be the year of the bond. That's what a lot of uh, people were saying in terms of the market. And there was this expectation, given the higher level of yields, we were going to see investors come into the complex. We were going to see, uh, you know, a return in terms of price appreciation, spread tightening, and we then got kicked in the teeth right away with the banking crisis. And that kind of caused a flight to quality, uh, a little bit more uncertainty. And we wanted to see how that was going to affect, um, you know, future Fed policy. And then all of a sudden we hit the summer, the end of summer, and rates started back up again really quickly. Uh, and we saw spreads widen, especially thinking about like high yield bonds, spreads widen dramatically. Um, the thing that always challenged me and what I didn't understand was that the information that we had at that time, moderating inflation, um, a Fed that had been saying that they were going to be on hold uh, or potentially putting one more hike into the, into the front end of the yield curve and then maintaining a higher level of yields in the front end of the curve for some time, as well as additional treasury supply. Those were things that we knew back in May, June, July. And then... All of a sudden, we woke up one day in August and we started seeing people selling bonds. Um, it feels a lot more normal to me right now after we pulled back, um, you know, post-Fed, post-CPI in terms of the level of yield that we have in the marketplace and where spreads are. Um, but the only thing I can really characterize uh, the summer events and the most recent, uh, you know, rise in yields and interest rates is that we saw a lot lower liquidity across the market, whether you're talking about treasury bonds, whether you're talking about corporate bonds, high yield instruments, or other off-the-run securities. And I think it just takes it sometimes one or two market participants to kind of push things the other way. And I think that's what we saw happen. And now we're seeing that pullback uh, due to lower liquidity in the marketplace. I, I've been thinking on this low liquidity thing for a while. Do, how much of that can you ascribe to the Fed? So the Fed came in during the pandemic, and they made sure that the credit markets still functioned, as they slowly pull out of the some of the markets, did that impact at all? Or do you think it is mostly just fixed income managers that are, that are doing that? Yeah, I don't think it's actually relegated to just fixed income managers. If I When I'm out and I'm talking with our sales force and I'm talking with um, FAs elsewhere, what I'm hearing a lot of times is I would just rather sit in cash. And cash yields are great. 
Uh, and I see that I equate that to a, a lack of desire to add risk to portfolios. It doesn't matter if it's equity risk. It doesn't matter if it's, uh, you know, interest rate risk, credit risk. People are hesitant to add risk to their portfolios at this point in time. Thinking about the Fed, um, you know, their involvement and their outsized force on the marketplace has been declining. We've known that it's been declining. I think that has a little bit to do with it, but uh, I think that kind of retail marketplace that's sitting in cash, institutional marketplace being weary of the next move has, um, you know, really exacerbated these liquidity issues, uh, you know, going forward and, and to this day. And I think that's why we've seen such a snapback rally here since November 1st. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned cash. Here's an analogy. Are you a sports guy? I am. So bonds are Chet Holmgren and cash is Wembenyama. <laughs> what I mean by that is Chet Holmgren is this, a, a seven for three rookie, uh, outstanding player uh, that if the seven five Frenchman was not in the league, Chet would be getting a lot more attention. But Wembenyama is sucking all the, the, the attention out of the NBA economy. Same thing is happening with, with cash and bonds, where bonds are super attractive, certainly relative to they happen for my entire career. But people are forsaking bonds because they see the, the headline rate on cash, and they might be making a mistake. They might be sleeping on bonds the way that people are sleeping on Chet. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think first off, I think Chet needs a really cool nickname, and then maybe he gets a little bit more of that attention. That is true. <laughs> right? Um, but, you know, if I think about the attractive yields in, in fixed income and cash, and thinking about cash, great, cash, I can earn five and a quarter. Well, what if I can get you cash plus 250, 300 basis points? And I think that's one of the common misconceptions of the bond market, and one of the things that we try and do with our strategic income fund at Nuveen, and that is adapt to what the market gives you. Um, you know, I look at what we hold in this particular portfolio. We've got, uh, you know, 28% of the portfolio is in floating rate securities. You know, another 22, 23% of the portfolio is in uh, what I'll call variable rate securities. So and Nick, I should say, I should say for your, for your sake <laughs> that we're recording this on Friday, November 17th, and that is apt to perhaps change. Yep. Um, and these are what I'm quoting. You are actually quarter end numbers. So, oh, even better. Okay. Yep. So we're, we're protected there. But, you know, I think that's one of the misconceptions of the bond market is that you're going to go out and you're going to get the Bloomberg aggregate index. You're going to get a bunch of treasury bonds. You're going to get out. You're going to get a bunch of investment grade corporate bonds. You're going to get a bunch of agency mortgages. Those are fixed rate bonds. They're typically longer duration. You're going to have a lot of interest rate sensitivity. And you're going to be exposed to parts of the curve in the longer end where yields are still inverted or a little bit lower. But there's significant opportunity outside of those core sectors. And a fund tries to go out and take advantage of those opportunities. So thinking about floating rate securities, leverage loans, floating rate mortgage credit, things like that, where we can get cash plus. I wanted to get into the, the aggregate stuff, but where, where are you buying these floating rate securities from? Is this mostly issued by banks? Who's issuing these floating rate securities? Because they're obviously the ones that are having some pain right now. If they're costs are going up basically. Right. So thinking about the, the senior loan or leverage loan market, those are typically instruments that are um, taken out by corporate issuers, uh, arranged by banks, and then syndicated out to investors. They're going to be three-month floaters, essentially. Um, so they're going to adjust to three-month term SOFR. And they're going to be typically below investment grade. The issuers that go out to the marketplace either can't access capital markets 
or wish to potentially you know finance LBO activity or some other uh, you know type of activity on their end, and they're going to go out into an arranger bank and and uh, syndicate these loans. So they're going to be corporate issuers uh, from that perspective. Uh, one of the biggest sectors in our number one call this year was in mortgage credit. We love mortgage credit. We think the status of the U.S. homeowners and very strong footing. And the two biggest issuers of mortgage-backed securities uh, in the United States are Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. And they actually take a portion of their credit risk of their books and issue that back out to the market in a um, credit-rated structure that offers a one-month floating rate coupon. When you combine those fundamentals of housing plus the floating rate nature of that security, we would think that has a um, you know, really uh, important place in portfolios. I want to get more into the credit stuff and uh, talk about what you just mentioned. I just don't want to forget, you mentioned benchmarking. Talk about some of the differences between benchmarking in your world versus equity people who are unfortunately racing against the Apples and Googles and you know the, the standard benchmark there has been, you know, for all intents and purposes, impossible to beat over the last decade. Talk about the differences between that benchmark versus the one that investors compare you with. Yeah. So I maybe a little bit of background in terms of benchmarking and fixed income first, and not specifically to the strategy that I run. Um, but if you think about the passive world, it's just trying to replicate that index. So in passive fixed income investing, you are generally going to see fund managers uh, try to replicate the, the Bloomberg Ag, which is a very heavyweight, like 93% of those uh, sectors that I'll call the big three, treasuries, IG corporates, and agency mortgages. Um, then you have your active managers. Your active managers are typically trying to beat that index by a significant margin. Um, but there's going to be limits in terms of how far outside of the index they can invest. And then you might have a more active kind of go anywhere strategy, such as our strategic income fund, which can deviate substantially from that index, has a significantly large amount of um, tracking error versus that index. And I would say it would then be more benchmark aware, so to speak. Like I understand that the broader fixed income universe as defined by the Bloomberg aggregate index is like six and a quarter years duration. It has these fixed rate securities, it has these characteristics, it's investment grade. Now, where can I add value for investors? Where can I go out and outside of the index and add these different sectors into the portfolio? You mentioned the you met you're investing in mortgage credit. That's one space Michael and I've been paying attention to, just looking at mortgage rates. And of course, that's something that's not all the consumer mindset right now. People are borrowing. And if you look back historically, the the spread between 30-year mortgages and 10-year treasuries is maybe not at an all-time high, but it's blown out about as wide as it gets, right? It, can you explain how that sort of spread works and why the spread is so much wider now than it has been in years past? There, I think there's several very simple reasons in terms of why that mortgage spread is so much wider now than where it was two years ago, three years ago. Uh, the first thing is that People aren't selling their homes, and there's fewer, uh, there's lower demand for homes. So there's um, less of a need for mortgage originators to be on staff to close loan after loan after loan. They have pricing power. They're transferring that pricing power over to the potential homeowner. Um, number two, the demand for bank portfolios is limited uh, for mortgage-backed securities as well as just 
whole owned residential mortgage investing directly. Um, we think back to March, uh, SVB Signature Bank ran into problems where they had very large portfolios of mortgage-backed mortgage securities or mortgage loans that they accumulated during the financial crisis. A large number of banks still have significant mortgage exposure on their banks and are not on their books and are not willing to add more at this point in time. Um, and when you factor those things in, it's, it's a seller's market if you're trying to originate a mortgage and they're transferring that on to potential homeowners. What would be what would cause that spread to to narrow in the years ahead? Because that's obviously what consumers would want. They want their borrowing costs to go down. So what would it take for that to happen? Would it just be more housing activity? I think, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna start to see greater demand for housing. Uh, so it's gonna be a challenge at this point, I think, with the large number of homeowners who refinance their mortgage during COVID who are locked into a really favorable scenario to come out and create additional existing home supply that homeowners can buy we're, or potential homeowners can buy. We're seeing demand start to pick up. It's increasing. Uh, I think mortgage applications um, last week, or I'm sorry, this week, were um, you know, took a significant leg up. As rates came down, would-be borrowers kind of pulled forward that demand and started locking in mortgage rates again. Is it back to uh, you know 2020, 2021 type activity? Absolutely not. But we're seeing just even you know, small amounts. Any decline in interest rates is spurring homeowners back into the marketplace. And, and we think that that would continue given a larger move lower in rate. How surprised were you in 2022, which which was a really difficult year for bonds that set up the, the really nice environment that we're in today for investors? How surprised were you that in an environment where stocks get killed, bonds get killed, that high yield outperformed treasuries? Well, I think thinking about the construct of the high yield market and where it is today versus what we think about the high yield market historically, the quality of the issuer is significantly greater. There's a bias more towards the double B sector of the market. There is this fundamental strength there. Uh, so to some degree and with certain issuers, I do think that there was um, greater strength in that sector of the market than what we would have ordinarily forecast in terms of you know, uh, a changing economy, increased funding rates and challenges to business. Furthermore, we did see uh, companies being able to um, uh, transmit their higher costs to consumers to uh, you know, basically increase their prices. And I think that really helped them uh, maintain a solid footing. And we saw generally strong earnings out of a lot of these below investment grade issuers. It was a little bit of a surprise, but then when you kind of break down those subsectors, it made it um, like you could go, oh yeah, that kind of made sense. In, in your investment process, how much of your process requires you to pay attention to the macro and figure out what the Fed's doing and figure out where interest rates are going or growth or inflation or whatever? And how much of it is just looking at the risk-reward setup in fixed income? Because that, that's it's, it's kind of like a top-down versus bottom-up thing for stock pickers. How much of it, what's your what's your relative weighting there? Oh, man, you totally gave me like this like, you know, layup here to, to, okay. to hit on this one. Because um, I, th I think regular people would probably think, well, People who manage bonds are just guessing which way interest rates are going. And that, as we've seen in the last few years, that's nearly impossible. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, you might have a view, you might lean into that view, and that comes into your top-down perspective. You know, the way I like to think about how we invest and how, what I do in terms of the lead portfolio manager role on this fund is um, I invest the way that I would want to invest in my PA. I invest in the way that I think things are supposed to be done and kind of chasing yields or putting on a yo or just going max risk. 
doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, I also think about that. I've listened to the pitches. I hear guys say, oh, well, we combine a top-down and a, and a bottom-up process, and this is what we do. But I've never really heard anybody explain that. Um, and I think what we do in our setup at Nuveen really helps us kind of implement those aspects. And from a top-down perspective, it's all about understanding global macro. It's understanding what the next you know, move from central bank activity is going to be, what Fed interest rate policy is going to be like, what foreign central banks, what the Bank of Japan is going to be doing, because they're a large consumer of U.S. treasuries. Putting all of this these things together, thinking about what the growth trajectory for earnings is for investment-grade issuers, what are the pitfalls for funding from a below-investment-grade issuer that might see their borrowing costs increase for their floating rate leverage loans as short-term rates increase and putting all these things together from a macro view and then layering that in to where we see value across fixed income, whether it's investment grade corporates versus treasuries and agency mortgages to comparing you know, uh, below investment grade securities and high yield corporate bonds, leverage loans, as well as double B rated mortgage credit instruments. And then factoring in the global view from our emerging markets team and kind of synthesizing that stuff together. And I think we have a lot of tools that we use to put together that composite view from a macro basis. But then we have to combine that with what we can actually do at the security level. And that's where our focus on relative value comes into play. And one of my favorite examples and, and discussion points is when I set an asset allocation strategy for the, for, uh, for the fund. I'm looking at the opportunities on a large, broad level, like an index type level for, let's say, emerging markets. And I'm just going to make up some yields for reference and give you some scale. But let's say the potential yields in emerging market sovereigns are, uh, you know, 9%. And we like that risk profile. We feel comfortable with the growth scenarios uh, across, uh, you know, number of issuers there. And then I interact with our sector manager for emerging markets. And he's like, that's great. Uh, I understand you're looking at the entire world, but that has Argentina. And Argentina is like 25% yield. And we don't want to include that in, port in our portfolios because it's too volatile. And they default every time that, uh, you know, I change my socks. Forget about it. What you're really looking at is something more actionable, like an 8% yield. But we feel really strongly in, you know, nearshoring trades, like putting a significant amount of investment into Mexico. So we kind of revise those assumptions. And those are the types of conversations that we're having on the desk. Nick, if you're looking at uh, different areas of your universe, I guess let's, let's start with corporates. Are you seeing any stress on the balance sheet that's being borne by higher interest rates? Like how does, how does cash flow look like coverage, coverage ratios? How does all that stuff look like? Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing is that um, the maturity wall got moved out a lot from investment-grade corporate issuers. They took advantage of the, the gift from the Fed in 2020, 2021, refinanced their debt, extended maturity. So we're really not seeing that come through. Um, you know, that's on the, on the investment-grade side. Uh, you know, we're expecting defaults to pick up um, either from uh, – lack of, of earnings or maybe a degradation in terms of, uh, you know, uh, sales from certain high yield issuers. But um, broadly speaking, the sector remains very strong. Uh, and the, the names that we're invested in, you know, we're pretty selective. Uh, so it's, um, 
going to be a little bit more challenging there, but I think the dire scenarios of seeing something in like a five to 7% default rate for high yield is, is a little bit overblown. In terms of areas that are under pressure, obviously commercial real estate, specifically the office space, it's no secret to anybody that that's under pressure. I'm sure you've seen bonds that are trading at 20 cents on the dollar or worse. You see any any uh, sense that some of that might be overdone, obviously warranted the punishment, but any opportunity there or are you staying away from it? Uh, we are we are invested in in the CMBS in the portfolio. Uh, you know, as of quarter end, uh, we had uh, about twelve percent of the portfolio in select CMBS holdings, and I think unfairly the entire sector has been uh, route would probably be too strong a word, but uh, faced uh, you know significant amount of spread widening. And when I say it's it's a little bit overdone or broad based, it's because the office story is still unfolding, but very real. But when you're looking at CMBS issues that are you know, backed by a large number of industrial properties that are not facing those same challenges in terms of return to office and, and uh, you know, overbuilt real estate that we see across the country, uh, that's a different story, but it's being kind of dragged down by that office sector. Same thing with multifamily. There's not enough houses in this country. We were talking about from the resi side earlier. It's the same thing from apartments. And when you look at multifamily deals, we're seeing, you know, those that's, you know, significantly wider spreads, higher yields, uh, and those sectors have been drawn down as well. So we have a greater concentration in those sectors of the CMBS market. Another interesting feature that a lot of people don't realize about CMBS is that there's a certain subsector of the market called single asset, single borrower, or SASB. And that's a CMBS deal where you can buy an exposure to one particular building. So it might not be an office complex in, you know, middle America that has 15% tenancy, but it's a recent building, brand new construction that has 99% occupancy with 10-year leases locked in. That's a pretty good risk. And we really like that risk. So we've been able to tailor our portfolio and take advantage of some of those opportunities in the SASB space as well. One of the arguments Michael and I have we're still trying to figure out, maybe you can help figure this out for us, is like the, the bond market is always considered the smart money. Do you do you think that the bond market, though, has been pretty confused these last few years? It, it seems like the moves we're seeing, uh, like the long end taking so long to move, and then finally, like in the, in the last six months, just taking off and then coming down. Do you think the bond market is just as confused as everyone else is in the current scenario, in the current environment? Yeah, I struggle with that as well. Uh, you know, I've been told my entire career, oh, yeah, you're on the smarter side of the business. And I'm like, really struggling to see that right now. You know, from a from a forward looking perspective, my expectation is that I think we're I think the Fed's right. I think we're going to stick that soft landing. I don't know how they did it, but I think they're going to I think they're going to do it. And that's a pretty great scenario. And it looks like equities is pricing that right right now. Um, you know, there's still there's still room to grow. If we see us truly stick it, inflation come down, we get some successive prints with a two handle on CPI, then it's like off to the races, I think. What does that mean for the bond market if we get a soft? Does that just mean, because people, it seems like, are either positioned for like higher rates and higher growth or like really low rates in a recession. And so I think the soft landing would have to be maybe the moderate rates and moderate growth. Is that what it, is that what it would look like potentially? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that's a pretty good scenario. Um, you know, we don't need to see like four or 5% GDP prints to get all excited and see equity valuations expand, but we see some moderate growth, something that exceeds inflation, 
So if we see two and a half to three percent type prints for inflation, we see economic growth in that like kind of three and a half percent GDP range. That's an awesome scenario for for markets. So what happens to the bond market at that point? Um, that implies that we're going to see the Fed start to cut rates. So I think there's a lot of upside in terms of lower rates in the front end of the curve, a steepening of the yield curve. But most importantly, I think there's got to be a narrowing of spreads. So see investment grade corporate spreads come in from 115 basis points, 110 basis points versus treasuries down to something more like 95 basis points, seeing high yield uh, you know, uh, spreads. If you ballpark the high yield corporate bond market at around 425 basis points of spread to treasuries, uh, we were averaging about 375 pre-COVID with a low of, I think, 275 for double P paper. So there's a substantial amount of spread tightening and price appreciation that can occur uh, across spread products as well. Like you talk about this idea that if the Fed cuts next year, that just taking all the duration of the world is not necessarily the best way to play that. Like if you knew that they were going to cut, what do you think a sensible strategy would be? Obviously that's, you know, I'm asking you to predict the future and there's a million billion variables involved, but just knowing that the, that the Fed funds were going to be at, at 4% next year, what would that tell you? Yeah. Um, well, you know, and you're asking the guy who just told you that I had a bunch of floating rate exposure in the portfolio as a quarter end. You know, one of the things that we can do and what the strategy that I'm going to employ to try to mitigate that risk when we see that happen is through interest rate derivatives. So going out to uh, futures on SOFR to kind of neutralize that risk or kind of lock in a fixed rate funding in the short end of the curve for my floating rate exposure in the portfolio. It's great if 10 years rally another 50 basis points with the front end 100 basis points lower. Uh, there's some really good returns in buying duration, but you're leaving behind that extra 150 basis points of income for double B, or I'm sorry, for triple B rated corporate bonds in, in the 10 year sector. And you're also leaving behind that spread compression or that additional price appreciation. Because if the 10 year note's going up, you know, 10 points at that point for a 50 basis point rally, you're missing out on an additional, you know, maybe two points of tightening or price appreciation in a 10-year corporate bond. Perfect. Nick, anything that you wanted to cover that we didn't hit on today? I mean, we could talk forever. Uh, one, one thing I really like is- I got a question. Yeah. Okay. All right. So so for, for so there are obviously big differences between what you do on the strategic income side versus, say, the benchmark. Uh, what does- what does a bad market environment look like for you or or for your investors? Like, what would that what would that look like? Yeah, a, a bad market for for me for investors, I think, is similar to what you're going to see uh, for you know investors, be it in equity space or uh, you know other risk assets, and that is going to be significant decline in consumer spending. Seeing that consumer pullback, seeing earnings decline dramatically for corporate issuers, seeing those issuers then pull back from a high income perspective and that kind of negative cycle where fewer people are then employed, they can spend even less. And we start to enter a really true deep recession. In that case, you see uh, spreads for not only corporate issues, but as well as uh, securitized products widen substantially uh, and underperformance in uh, you know, more risky portfolios. You know, I like to say the you know the strategy we run is designed for somebody who wants to be invested in bonds, who wants a little bit more certainty, 
but in terms of their cash flow or downside, but is looking for significant returns and not just trying to mail it in and buy that passive index. Great. Where can we send people to learn more about your strategy? Uh, you can go out to Nuveen.com and uh, you can get bios on a number of our team members uh, that cover the different sectors that work with me in terms of identifying relative value opportunities there as well. Great. Thanks for coming on, Nick. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Okay. Thanks again to Nick. Thanks to Naveen. Remember, go to Naveen.com to learn more. Email us, animalspirits at the compoundnews.com, and we'll see you next time.